I'm very excited to begin again in Acts, and we will plot along for the foreseen future. But it's been a month and a half since we've had any of Acts in our system. And so what I want to do is give a summary of the first five chapters um, like this. First off, in chapter one, what we saw is that the book... Luke sets it up as the continuation of Jesus's ministry from heaven by his spirit in the church. And this is all based upon the prophetic word. You you know that I've said I'm going to baptize with the spirit not many days from now. Wait in Jerusalem. And then according to that word, this spirit anointed the church. We, We saw this Um, connection. Christ is the anointed one and he has thusly given us a portion of his spirit and therefore also given us the anointing for the proclamation of the gospel. Um, And what we saw from there is the historical fact of the matter which has come to pass. There was a fulfillment of scripture in two different places that we looked at in Judas according to the scriptures, came and betrayed Jesus and sent him to his death. And Judas himself died and fell headlong and burst open at the seams, as it were. And there was therefore a necessary replacement as the scriptures foretold and they saw come to pass uniquely in their day. Now, chapter two and three, I'll lump those together. Because what we see here in this section is that there is the fulfillment of Jesus' words of the Spirit coming. There's tongues. And Peter explains this by the fact that they are in the last days of the old covenant uh, before the full-fledged start, as it were, of the the new covenant era. But... um, Go back and listen to my sermon on that if you, if you want more details. But accompanying these days, which began with Jesus, the last days of the old covenant, there were signs and wonders, which when the spirit, uh, which was in full measure on Jesus, is then given to the church, well, then the apostles exercised that same sort of miraculous and extraordinary caliber of signs and wonders. And then Luke, in this section, begins to highlight the content of the preaching in the church. And one of the major themes that we see at the beginning is this idea of fulfillment. It comes again and again and again, but there's a specific and narrow focus as it begins, especially in the long extended sermon in chapter two, um, as well as into chapter three, a second sermon of Peter. Uh, What we see is this narrow focus on Christ's both his death and his resurrection and installment on the throne of David. And therefore, because that is the case, he's been made Lord and Christ, Israel must immediately repent of their sins and be baptized into the name of Jesus, which is his person, his work as a part of the triune God, yet the God-man sent to redeem Israel. Further, we have the preaching, which also encompassed that Jesus also fulfills not just some, but many, many, many of the covenant promises given to God's people. He is the fulfilling Abraham's uh, seed 
promise that would bless the whole earth and through whom the whole earth would come to the Lord. Uh, The covenant promises to David as the promised son who is to sit down at Yahweh's right hand or the promise to Moses, which uh, was said to him, I will raise up a prophet like you in the last days. And so Jesus is raised up as a prophet predicting his own death and resurrection and therefore is there come to sent, sent to turn God's people away from their destruction. Chapter four, we see the impenitent heart and the blindness of the Jewish leadership. They were growing increasingly hostile, refusing to receive Christ and the gospel according to the apostles. And yet we see the church, on the other hand, recognizing that this is all unfolding according to God's sovereign and predestined plan, uh, that Christ, by virtue of his death and resurrection, has fulfilled Psalm 2. The Gentiles and the nations and the Jewish leadership raged And the Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs because this is how he installs his king on Zion's holy hill. And so there is a great multiplication in that time. There's many, many, there's a couple thousand believers and then there's another huge in gathering of people. So this is sort of mega church status at this point. Um, There is great unity though at the time. They are together and they're of one heart and one mind distributing their proceeds um, to whoever had need. And in chapter five, lastly, we saw that there was, uh, even though there is great unity, that doesn't mean there wasn't a rat in their midst. Uh, God himself ousted a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira supernaturally. Um, and Luke himself pulls from the story of Achan and the new t- or the Old Testament that is, and roots out hypocrisy and shows how that cannot be a part of the new covenant community. <clears throat> and very finally, as a recap, Psalm 2 not only played out in Christ, it plays out in the apostles. They are continuing the ministry and as the Jewish leadership uh, beat and scourged and harmed the church, um, yet at the same time, the rulers were being thwarted. They put the apostles in jail and they made a dungeness escape by an angel supernaturally, supernaturally releasing them. And then even a respected teacher of the law that everybody knew and trusted, his name's Gamaliel, was the spokesperson for God, even though he didn't know it. Uh, and though it's a question in his mind, Luke declares it as the emphatic reality of what is taking place is, Um, You, he says, are opposing God and you will not be able to overthrow him. So the gospel is multiplying. So we begin where uh, the gospel cannot be chained and it is growing in the people and there are increasing numbers. Let us read verse one and I'll begin to make our comments here and apply this. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing or multiplying in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews 
because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. I just want to point out that it says that disciples were being multiplied. This is um, the uh, essential thing to recognize that it was not that they had a flashy revival of sorts and there were a lot of people who walked down the aisles and signed the cards. It was not that they had an influx of lots of baptisms. For sure, they had uh, the conversion of sinners who were baptized into the name of Jesus, but these are disciples. It's, it's converts who are sticking around, not just in a flash of the pan moment, but rather these are men and women and children who had begun on the lifelong process of following after Jesus. They had heard, repent or you will go to hell. And they said, sign me up. <laughs> I'm going that way forever. Uh, this is the new way of humanity. This is what is taking over the globe because Christ is king. And so there are those who had made the plunge as it were and uh, were in this process of full-orbed discipleship. You remember in the Great Commission, these men who had been with Jesus for three years, been discipled by him, then he turns around and says, you know, you know how I've made you disciples? Do that to every one of the nations. <laughs> that is a full encompassing all of life, uh, all of Christ for all of life, as Doug Wilson says. There was a harvest at this time of many win- men, women, and children who were undergoing this process of full enculturation to Christ. And there's a complaint that comes. So not everything's peachy. Uh, Not everything goes smoothly in the time of multiplication. Um, There is a blessing here, but there's also a difficulty. This is part of the process of discipleship. Uh, Not everything is easy. And sometimes there are legitimate complaints, as we will see here. Uh, And then there are sometimes not. We, We should beware of being a grumbly sort of people on the one hand and just being complainers. And then on the other hand, we should also be recognizing that that's part of the Christian walk in our life here as we grow uh, both spiritually and and numerically, if the Lord sees fit to do either of those, then we will see uh, complaints arise, some being legitimate. And so we should be able to handle and reckon with those and critique our own practices and reform them accordingly. These are part of the growing pains that happens with every young person as they grow up. They have complaints because their joints are achy and hurt. Um, and they have tummy pains because they got to eat more. And the same thing happens to us. There is a growth and there is also some growing pains as we do so. Now, <clears throat> notice the situation that he calls out in the midst of growing there is the, the pain of a particular concern, and it has to do with this thing called the daily distribution. In the early church here, we understand that they had bunches of needy people among them, and they saw fit to feed them as a, as a daily necessity. In pagan Rome, they didn't have what we have in terms of a social safety net. 
this is brought about by charity. So when there's lots of poor in your midst, this is the way in order for the church to meet that need out of compassion. They, they saw a, a responsibility to meet the physical needs of their people. Um, we even see the scriptures talking about Jerusalem's poverty later on in Acts. But here, there's interestingly two groups that have formed. And there are um, those who are Hellenists who are seeing a problem and they are speaking up for their widows. So there is uh, men uh, and potentially women speaking up for the uh, those who don't have husbands in their midst. And they are looking to remedy this unequal treatment that's happening. And this is a common human problem. E- even in the midst of unity and growth, there is a great temptation towards factiousness, tribalism, as we might call it. There is two groups who have sort of separated themselves, and there are the Jewish-speaking or the Hebrew-speaking Christians, and then there are the ones who have a Greek tongue, the the Greek-speaking Jews who have embraced Christ Jesus, and they are sort of separated and looking after their own, and the one group is not caring about the other group. And so this is why the complaint comes, because people are naturally, um, have a natural tendency to, to break off into factions and to not care about each other in the way that we should. Uh, we ask, well, wasn't there unity just last chapter? Well, yeah, there is, but um, there is a need to continue to go, okay, well, there's unity Um, And as we've gone along, there's been a disruption, a a sinful internal disruption that has worked out in our practice. And now we are not living in accordance with the gospel in this way. This group is is not jiving with this group in the midst of the church. And so on the one hand, there's factiousness and and that's um, a sad thing. And then yet on the other hand, we can applaud this church because there are some men who are seeing their fellow Christians without husbands in the church, and they said, somebody needs to voice their need. I'm going to take it upon myself to do that. And so I just call us to take up that kind of model. Let us be the kind of church that's observant of our own particular problems and to do something about them individually. We all have the responsibility and authority to see what goes on relationally, or even if we want to broaden it out and go wider to our, our building or our meal trains or whatever we do. Um, these are the sorts of things that you can go, ah, oh, there's a problem here and, and handle that. Uh, take responsibility for it. So this is the situation. And now that we've set it up, let us look at the um, leadership of the apostles and what they do. This is verse two through four. Let's read it together. It says, in the 12 summoned, that's the 12 apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up tea. Um, This word is inserted by the ESV preaching. It's literally just the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, 
full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So what is the response of the apostles? Their first response to the problem is, well, we got to have a congregational meeting. So they summoned, said, hey, come to our congregational meeting apart from the Lord's Day service. We are not that far from that day. This is our practice too. Luke records the assessment here of the apostles and what they considered the appropriate use of their time. One must assume that they didn't all magically arrive and then just spontaneously come up with this decision, but rather they conferred together and as an elder board, or we should say apostolic board here at this particular time, they had meet together previously and hashed out, okay, here's the situation, here's what we're going to do, this is what we're going to present to the church. And so there is a sort of principle here of, of elders meeting together and working things out. And so when they meet with God's people in the congregational meeting, they have a specific direction. Hey, we think this is how things should go. And they show how their philosophy of ministry works to the congregation. <clears throat> and what they first remind the church is the nature of their ministry. They say that their plan is, is not to go and go wait at tables and to be over this themselves. They, they have a different idea. They want to distinguish between the teaching of God's word and prayer on the one hand, and then on the other hand, they think, yes, this is good. We need to meet this need. This oversight needs to be had here, but uh, we are not to forsake the one for the other. They give the church saying there's an either or option, and if we um, do this one for the other, we're abandoning the nature of our ministry. As apostles of Christ, and which has given way to elders, the point of the role is related to the word of God and to prayer. They would, I think it should be translated, uh, let us, what does it say? Let us not give up uh, the preaching of the word for serving tables. You could translate that a little more forcefully, I believe, as we not forsake the word of God. They had a, a duty by Christ, even in the first chapter, to specifically give the witness to the nations in an authoritative way. Or in Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to go read it, they are, the apostles are founding the church in its doctrine and doing so in an inspired, unique way. And so they want to remind the church of their responsibility as apostles of Christ and then say that this is, fits in a different category and they have a plan to do something about it. <clears throat> One thing that you may have heard in the past is the sort of application that I want to make real quick is I've heard a comment from uh, congregants, not, not here, but it, plenty of other places where uh, a guy will say something like, I want a pastor who's going to clean the toilets. And the apostles would flat reject that. No, <laughs> you do need a pastor who has the humility to do so or the willingness to serve and to take responsibilities for such a thing in the church. 
but he also has to have a right order of priorities and know that what his priorities are and learn how to delegate and manage those things in a way that way, uh, not to neglect the one for the other, but rather to provide for both by appointing and installing those who are worthy of the office <clears throat> to which can handle that. So um, pastors in the same way not need not to um, forsake, but to really be diligent about uh, preaching ministry, the, the word of God in counseling, the teaching in a, in a private setting, one-on-one uh, -on -one or, or in, a, in a different setting attached to the uh, ministry of the word or any public or private prayer that might be done. Um, secondly, or thirdly in this point, this is C, church suffrage. This is specifically about verse three. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty. Notice here that they lay the responsibility of the church to identify their own ministry leaders. It's under the direction of the apostles, but the church itself is supposed to look out among them and to recognize and themselves, as it were in our terms, hire or install those who ought to have the responsibility over them. This is what we call church suffrage. That is the right to vote. This is, I would say, a great pointer, though there's distinctions between the apostles and, and this ministry of deacons here and, and some work that we have to do to transfer it to our day. Now, uh, such factors make me say this is a congregational type government rather than a Presbyterian type government or um, any sort of other flavor here. This is... <clears throat> real authority in the congregation itself, such that they actually have a real say in who their ministers are going to be, who their authorities will be. And this kind of church suffrage um, includes both the leadership of the apostles and the church as a whole, and both of these parties work together to form a final decision. And, and they can do so because Christ himself is head of the church. And his spirit's within every member of the church. And so corporately, we are directly being led by Christ, even though there are ordinary men set as responsible parties. Now, <clears throat> let us get to the section of qualifications here. Uh, this is D, 2D in your outline. Qualifications. Now, I, I recognize and I'll be up front that there are disagreements between like-minded brothers. The last church that I went in had a, uh, a different view than this, and I've been in previous churches, and even our practice here in the past is different than I'd advocate for now. And I'm not doing a full sermon on this. I just point out the fact that <clears throat> here we have the, the office of deacon uh, in form and this text, it goes along with 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications at a later time for the office of, of deacon. And, and these two passages, because there's some difficulty in the 1 Timothy 3 for some, 
I don't think there's much of a difficulty. But nonetheless, because there's a difficulty harmonizing this text and that text, there's three different biblical positions on this. And so all I want to say today is, is in principle, I think that it's, it's the duty of pastors to harmonize one with the other. And the consistent way to harmonize, in, in my opinion, is to say, well, what we see in, in 1 Timothy 3 is in harmony with this passage here. And this is the practice of the apostles. They appoint men only, seven men to the office of deacon. And then we have a detailed qualification list in 1 Timothy 3. So we see the practice of the apostles, and then we see the prescription of the apostles um, in these two different texts. We're in the practice of the apostles now in appointing seven men. So this is a, a men-only relationship, a men-only office. Uh, and, and why would that be? Well, the, the reason for this is because deacons here in this situation must handle large relational conflict between groups of people. In a huge sense, they are going to manage a huge, huge ministry. There's seven of them. We only have four elders, and that's a higher, uh, a more authoritative office in a different direction um, at our point in time. But these, these seven men are going to... Uh, potentially have, you know, hundreds of volunteers. I don't know how many volunteers it takes, but there's thousands and thousands of needy people in this time whereby they're overseeing both men and women and a relational conflict that's happening here between groups of men and women. And they are to exercise authority over those groups so as to not only make sure the needs are met in this ongoing problem, but actually handle and make sure that there's gospel peace and gospel practice in between these groups of Christians, that, that they would be counseled and ordered. And uh, we are told in First Timothy 3 that exercising authority and teaching is given to the men alone and women are forbidden from the office. So... That is the case in my interpretation. And there is <clears throat> more things to be talking, talking about here. But what we see in this particular text is that these thousands which are being managed, uh, these deacons don't have an unseen behind the, behind the curtain labor. They're actually up front managing other people underneath them. They are seven men are not enough to handle the task. They actually have an overseeing, this is the word used in the text, overseeing type ministry where they are up front and, and they are um, in the promotion of implementing a particular thing that the elders have, or the apostles that is, have <clears throat> consented to along with the congregation. Now, uh, besides just being men, there is these other qualifications, and it happens similar to that in First Timothy and Titus. There is a, a sort of what I like to call like a, a head term, which is uh, applied to two different ways in which, um, uh, well, let me just say it here. So the, the word itself is martureo. A lot of times it's just to like to bear witness about something. And so it's a person bearing witness. Um, you talk about martyrs. We, we use that same terminology where they're bearing witness for Christ and they are put to death in the way that we use it. But um, here it's 
men who have uh, a good witness about them. That is, they are well attested among, you know, how, how big is this church? 10,000 people, maybe something like that. Uh, there's a lot of people and they're supposed to, the congregation is supposed to have knowledge of, of seven men in particular, how the apostles came up with that number. I'm not sure, but they did. And the congregation saw that it was fitting. And so they said, okay, who are seven standout men in the congregation of 10,000 people? You'd, you'd have pretty specific things that you're looking for. And so the two ways in which they are to be well attested or, or standouts in terms of their reputation is first, full of the spirit, and second, full of wisdom. Full of the spirit, what does that mean? First of all, it does not mean that they spoke in tongues. <laughs> uh, they might have, but that's not what it means, even though that's uh, Typically, if you talk about a spirit-filled church, that's what people mean. They speak in tongues. But what it means here, what, well, what does being full of something in the scriptures mean anyways? Um, we say that people are full of stuff and therefore we don't trust them. But a great distinction probably lies in Ephesians 5 in the very famous verse. Do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. Filled with the Spirit, drunk with wine, there's, there's two fillings happening. Paul teaches that the one in that text who's full of the Spirit sings in the church with thanksgiving in their hearts and then humbly acts towards his brothers and sisters in the congregation. Whereas, on the other hand, the one who is full of wine is led into a lifestyle or led into actions of debauchery. We could apply this broadly. I think drunkenness is the category that we apply apply to any narcotic at all, whether prescription or not. That's a different sermon for a different date. But drunkenness is the category. Being filled with wine uh, leads to slurred speech, promiscuity, um, and brawling, foul words, etc. Being filled, in other words, is the idea of that thing which controls you. And if you're thinking biblically according to Jesus' words, um, if you think about the thing you worship— that is the thing that controls you. We're really talking about a worship issue. Being filled with the Spirit means that you are serving your master Jesus and not money. Or you are serving Christ and, and not another thing. It is that which you worship and that worship which you give from the inner depths of your person then controls your actions. And so what the people are looking for as they're going, okay, good repute among the congregation is, is not into the heart of man. You and I don't have that ability. What they're looking at is simply the, the fruit of that control of the spirit. That is Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The, those are the sorts of categories they're looking at, at men who are exhibiting these things. And that's what it means to be full of the spirit. Somebody is not full of spirit if they're not acting in accord with the spirit because they're not controlled by him. And the same is to be said if they're acting in accord with the spirit by living out love and, and self-controlled ways, then, then they are somebody full of the spirit. They are uh, meeting up aspect of the qualification. 
The second part is full of wisdom. So full of spirit and wisdom you supply full of. Full of this and full of this. Full of wisdom, if the first qualification for, focuses mainly on like the moral qualification aspect of it, these things are not detached, but they're two ways of getting at um, these categories that are slightly different. It's like a Venn diagram. There's overlap, but there's distinction between full of the spirit and full of wisdom, though the person that's full of the spirit is likely full of wisdom. So here's the qualification. It is that they not only know how to think into, uh, into the ways of God, into um, uh, be morally upstanding as to God's law, but they also must know how to deal with finances. They must know how to deal with business and their household and their self-control. They, they, they know practical ways of living in this world like the Proverbs. Let me, let me change a phrase that we all know. They, we, we use the phrase, the rubber hits, when the rubber hits the road, that's where the rubber hits the road. Well, these men know where the theological rubber hits the practical road of our life. They understand the connection between theology and practice and how they go together. And so they manage their household well. They manage their business well. They steward their things well. This is what's required because they need to manage a dis- distribution chain of lots of people. They, they need to know how to handle bunches of everyday volunteer ministers who are ministering in the <clears throat> ways of the church and knowing how to have relational wisdom as there's some tension that's been between the different parties. And so there's handling a ministry team, as it were, and handling the general uh, giving that is happening and how these ministers work together in different groups. It has to be a wise person to be able to do that. <clears throat> that is, this person, in, in other words, can't be ham-handed in their relationships dealing with the concerns of people where they're handling relational stuff, but there's a wake of offended and hurt people in their midst. You're like, huh? That, that would be uh, not the person that we want to choose for the ministry. This doesn't mean um, that a deacon is, is soft or effeminate and everybody likes him or something like that. Rather, he's got a backbone, but he can also exercise care and compassion in the congregation such that people feel heard and understood, even if they're not agreed with. So there's no, um, what we don't want to see um, or what the apostles don't want to see is somebody who's going to get in the ministry and leave a wake of casualties and people who are going to be quieted and not provided for. So those are the qualifications that are there. Uh, lastly, verses five and six, we see the, the, what I'll call congregational polity. Now this is interpretational on my part because I'm a congregationalist. And so I, I have congregational glasses and I hit the congregational nails. Uh, this, this doesn't fly in other church traditions. I just think they're wrong. <laughs> uh, I think what we see here is uh, a type of polity. We're already seeing it. Polity is the, our politics, our, the way we uh, exercise our governmental authorities in the church, um, though it's slightly different here. 
what we see in verses five and six is this uh, sort of way of interacting between the different powers that God has set in the congregation. Notice verse five and six, the, uh, what they said, the, the um, apostles pleased the whole gathering. And so they, they chose seven men who are listed there. And then verse six, it says, they, that is the congregation set these before the apostles and the apostles, they prayed and laid their hands on them. So first we note that the congregation makes its voice known. Like it says somehow that we are pleased. This is good. We approve of that plan. So in, in, in principle, we know that the direction of the elders was approved by the people. And thus, they go out and select qualified people, whether they did it at one time or they came back. I don't know. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us all those. But he gives us the principle of the congregation's voice actually being heard and known. Uh, And yet, there is this interesting thing that we see all over Scripture. The actual principle is here, but not the mechanism. What do I mean by that? The congregation liked the idea in principle. They, they made their voice known. That's the principle. But the specific mechanism whereby they made their voice known to the apostles. Did they have delegates that come up and represent certain portions of the congregation and say, uh, these group of people, we all agree with that. And, did they vote? Did they just have a time of objections? And handle those concerns. We don't know the mechanism by which these things happen. We just know that it did happen. And this is a beautiful and wonderful thing that we also can see in the membership of the church itself. Is God, uh, in a gracious way, does not tell us the mechanism of the voting system, the making your voice known of first century Judaism. Because you know what we would do? Let's say they used lots and the specific mechanism was known. That's what we would do today. And we would all become first century Jews. And that process would never be flexible to change over the next, it's been 2,000 years now. Let's just say another 2,000 years goes by. The, the process would not be able to change from nation to nation and century to century according to what makes sense. We would be stuck in particular ways. Uh, but God's doesn't work this way. As long as the principle is carried out, that is the congregation who has authority to appoint their own leaders, then is able to speak in a way that they're actually represented, not just like, ah, I think the congregation will be good at that. Let's do this. (laughs) You know what I mean? And they're just like, okay, that's what we're doing now. The, The congregation is able to do that. So we can do things a little bit differently than they, and that's fine. Um, And the case is had all over the scriptures where we are not pigeonholed into a particular century and a particular means as the invention of the internet comes along and as the invention of telephones come along. We can use those. Those are, are, are good and necessary. Those actually help us in maybe how we might conduct our business. Um, it's all right to use uh, modern means in that sense, just so long as we don't abandon the principle, just so long as the congregation has its voice, 
Just so long as the, the congregation is actually exercises the authority which has been vested in it. Because that is what we see here. The congregation, if they are able to choose their people who are going to lead them, they're not just simply along for the ride. They actually have the keys to the deacon's office as they were, and they have seven desks in there, and they're going to assign seven desks to the seven deacons for their ministry by way of illustration. So the reason the Bible promotes things this way um, is because both in Israel, and you can, we'll go through Deuteronomy, Lord willing, after Acts. <laughs> That's going to be a hard task for me, but you can even pray for me now. Uh, I really, really want to serve us so well. But there is a huge decentralization of government. There, there is not a top-down sort of authority in the ways of Israel, nor is it in the ways of, of church. There is a real sense in which there is authority in the congregation itself, even if that's taken a slightly different form. The decentralization of government, if you read the Bible and ask, well, how do things work governmentally? It for sure is not carried out by the elites and there's a separation of powers. There was much wisdom in the founding of our very own country when it put checks and balances in the same way that the Bible does. And so here, the head of the church, Christ Jesus, is leading his body by the Spirit and in accordance with his laws. And he's doing it through appointed authorities and the congregation itself in this beautiful Harmony, And now <clears throat> this whole process has gone through. And the last thing that we see is the laying on of hands. They set them before the apostles and the apostles lay on hands. Um, the historical word for this is ordination. We have done this with Ed Warfield sometime before. And if you want to find a, a fuller statement than I can make today, I, I preach a whole sermon. Um, it's called Congregationalism. Two out of two, I think, or two slash two. It's a one of two part series in 2021. I think sometime there. You can find it in the assorted tab. So if you want to listen about laying on hands um, and what that all means, I can't explain it fully, but let me just summarize what this is. The apostles um, confirm the voice of the congregation and Uh, give this sort of visual display whereby they confer their authority to those who are being entrusted to the office. They are um, in a very similar way. You can go back to ancient Israel and go look at the priests with with the people conferring their sins onto the sacrificial animal. There is a a visual representation of what spiritually is going on, just as we would in the Lord's Supper or in baptism. There is a a real picture, um, one of laying on hands to this authority. Now, Now think about it this way. Christ has poured out his spirit. The apostles are carrying out the ministry, full of the spirit in the same ways of Jesus. And they, who everybody knows are authoritative, and who actually have real deal authority from heaven. It's, it's extremely visual at this point. And they are putting their hands. And as it were, there's a picture of the impartation of authority and of the spirit to 
these in the congregation. This is not necessarily happening as, as though they didn't have the Spirit and now they're getting full measure. But for sure, at the very least, it is the process by which um, things are bestowed, that is, of, um, of real deal responsibility over the congregation and of authority. <clears throat> and I just touch verse 7, and then we'll pick up there next time because there's uh, fantastic stuff in verse 7. But what we need to see here um, is that this sort of ordination and this action of the church, though all the details aren't worked out. Luke wants to give us a summary of, well, what was the result of all that? That's what verse seven is all about. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Not only were the needs physically met, but also the, the corporate body and all around Jerusalem, there were still people being converted. And this action, this governmental congregational action, actually had fruitfulness. Uh, this means that uh, for those of you who are in covenant membership currently, um, your membership and your voting actually has practical implications. It, it actually prospers us and keeps us moving along the right track as we come to speed bumps and different things that we have to decide. We'll have a congregational meeting soon, I'm sure. Now, the last thing is I like to apply things from the sermon to the Lord's Supper. And so I'm going to make an application here. We Americans nowadays have a great difficulty with both the ceremonial formalities that happen in like a laying on of hands and stuff like that, as well as some of the ritual aspects of the Christian faith. Um, we are uh, what you call non-sacramentalists. I'll explain some of that later. But essentially, us and Presbyterians are, are anti-sacramentalists. And so rituals, especially for us as Americans, sort of weird us out, uh, to say the least. And it is something that we can push back on. And in the past, especially in Baptist circles, there has been a tendency to not observe the Lord's Supper every week because we think of rituals and ceremonies in a different category of the word and prayer. But this ought not to be. Um, this symbolism here that is happening actually encourages the faith of the congregation here uh, by grace and the church is built up because of this action of this symbolic ceremony of laying on of hands and appointing people to a ministry, praying over them, commissioning them, as it were, to this office. Um, and we elders in our last really long meeting unanimously voted to begin observing the Lord's Supper weekly. We don't believe that rituals um, and ceremonies commanded and instituted by the Lord Jesus can ever become dull or will ever be diminished with their frequency. Uh, the same thing we believe about prayer. We don't pray once a month because we want to keep it special. We, we, don't, uh, we don't do anything like that. We, we, in fact, practice it all the more here. We, we think all the more the means of grace. This commanded and commended and instituted ritual by the Lord Jesus Christ is for our 
ongoing growth in a week-to-week basis. Although the physical signs, it's just bread and it's just wine or grape juice at this point, it, it, it doesn't transform into something magical, but God in you exercising faith in Christ, his finished work symbolized here, right now grow in spiritual grace. You are really nourished spiritually by the eating and drinking of this food and this drink. It is a beautiful, tangible sign. And so we want to say that as we practice this ceremonial ritual uh, instituted by God, I will say and and commend and say that every time we do this, if you think about it properly and exercise faith in Christ, the only thing you'll experience is growing deeper and deeper and deeper into the grace of Christ. And you will not diminish the supper at all. You will only taste that it's sweeter every time as God strengthens us. Okay, that's all that I have for you today.